Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. So, so the new year has begun. And I've been traveling. And in that traveling, I was the passenger no one wanted to sit next to on the plane, holding the paper sick bag, filling it literally. And not just on one flight, but on two flights. A great start for me and my fellow passengers, and American Airlines thanks me for my sharing. (laughs) But it got worse. As I was coughing my lungs out, I coughed that hard that something else came out. South, not north, okay? You didn't need to know that, okay? (laughs) These are the same genes, just so you know, okay? I didn't need to know it either, okay? But what do you do? There's still 45 minutes left in the flight. Could 2020 start any worse? And I've flown over seven, eight hundred times. And this was not actually my worst experience. I could tell you a story or two. And so I started 2020 feeling exhausted and yuck and worn out. And I knew something had been saying to myself for many months, Gilbert, Gilbert, you're running too fast. You need to make you know, take care of yourself. You need to slow down. You need to make some changes to guard your health and your heart and your soul, and you're being consumed by too much going on. And so, I had a choice to make this week. Uh, This first full week of work, and I'm in my sick bed on Tuesday, and I had a choice, a choice between work or getting healthy, a choice between starting 2020 consumed by effort and study and writing and preaching, or a choice of getting myself well again. And, and I had a choice to make, a choice between taking the time and the effort in writing a message for the Sunday, like 12 to 15 to 18 hours of writing and doing that while sick or the choice to take care of myself and get well and be healthy. So I made a choice. And let's stand for closing prayer. (laughs) Um, No, 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 no. I might cough through this preach, okay? I've brought my water with me, okay? Uh, My Scottish holy water's in my suitcase over there, and uh, this is Lamar. I'm not allowed that up here. But, uh, uh, But seriously, has anyone else felt tired and worn out as the year starts. And, you know, one of the most misquoted verses you will find in the Bible is the one that says, God will never give you more than you can keep. I, huh? Are you kidding me? Where is that one in the Bible? Poverty and holocaust and genocide and war and cancer. People are given more than they can handle all the time. What the Bible says is, no temptation is given people without a way out. But the Bible does not promise that you'll only be given what you can handle. It does promise 
that you'll never be placed in a situation that God can't handle. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, uh, Mark's Gospel is the first historical account of the written life of Jesus, and Jesus is facing adversities. He's tired, and he's worn out, and critics are around him, and doubters are around him, and he's been on the go for days and nights, and he's tired, and he's worn, and he tells his followers, if they had faith, they could command a mountain, and it would be cast into the sea. And when you focus is on the mountain, you will be dominated by fear and by exhaustion and by depression and by doubt and by weariness. You will feel like life is being sucked out of you. But for every life sucked out of you person here this morning, faith can make a mountain move. If you follow Christ, the faith that is inside of you makes you alive. Something good is happening inside of you that far outweighs whatever is happening outside of you. Uh, one writer put it like this here. It's on the screens. God isn't at work producing the circumstances you want, but God is at work in bad and difficult circumstances producing the you that He wants. Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher. He was kind of like the father of existentialism, Christian guy, and interesting writer. And he once said these words, affliction pressure is able to drown out every earthly voice, but the voice of eternity, deep in the soul, it cannot drown. Or, I don't know what you know about the church fathers, but Julian of Norwich uh, was an incredible woman of faith back in the 14th century. And she had the life sucked out of her because of the Black Plague. And she believed that God visited her in a, in a vision when she was sick. And she wrote a poem that, you know, these were the words that she felt God gave her. And her words probably became one of the most famous lines of Catholic poetic theology for that time in the 14th century. And her words went like this here, but all shall be well. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. He did not say, you shall know no storms, no travails, no diseases. He said, you shall not be overcome. So let's start this new year and this first series, this is a six-week series of uh, 2020, by drawing a faith line in the sand. God is in the redemption business. He specializes in bringing something very, very good out of some things very, very bad. And you might have walked in here this morning exhausted and beaten up and sucked dry and consumed by afflictions, by pressures, by stress, by stress, by worry. But grace beats sin every time, and prayers get heard every day, and the Bible endures, and heaven's mercies spring up new 
every single morning. And the cross still testifies to the power of sacrificial love. And the tomb is still empty. And God can be in a relationship with you that changes you in the midst of your circumstances. This is the Christian faith. This is what we believe as 2020 opens up for us. And what we believe is that faith in Christ can change our present. Faith can do that. The world will throw other ideas up to us, some of them good, many of them bad. But following Jesus, living out faith in Him, can change your present. In fact, it would be hard, hard to find a passage in the Scriptures that makes our faith be about going to heaven when we die. That's just not how it was taught. It's just not how the ancients thought of faith. It's about the present and changing our present. So, what's wrecking your life? What is it that is consuming you? Are you bowing down to the idol of success? Are you bowing down to the idol of attractiveness? Are you bowing down to the idol of family? Are you bowing down to the idol of money? Are you bowing down to the idol of busyness or the idol of comparison or the idol of religion? We are a worshiping people. We can't help it. So, the Bible has this little hidden away verse, which I think because of one word, uh, it's kind of been overlooked or we've viewed it rather condescendingly or we've taught it only in children's church. First uh, John chapter 5, verse 21, and the Holy Scriptures say these words, Dear children, and that's why sometimes we view it as condescendingly, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Turn to the person next to you and take a guess at the number of places of worship in America. Well, according to the American Religion Data Archives, their most recent survey, the number they came up with was 250,402. So just over a quarter of a million. And I think they got that wrong. Well, I know they got it wrong because I know of three churches that closed at the end of 2019. So we're down to 250,398, okay? But yes, they counted the number of buildings called churches or cathedrals or temples. But when some of you leave this service, you're going to go home, and you're going to sit on your couch, and you're going to watch a 55-inch screen. And truth be told, that 55-inch screen and what it shows gets the most of your hours. And truth be told, some of you can't switch it off. Now, just by the way, go Packers, but that's another story, okay? <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow, 
Tomorrow, many of us will head to sit behind a desk or a computer screen or a bunch of students or be in a field or wear a uniform or work on an engine or work on a patient or work with a customer. And some of you will find your ultimate sense of purpose and identity in that job. Behind that desk, in that office, wearing that uniform, around those customers, you will sacrifice the best of your time and best of your effort and the best of your emotional well-being and the best of your family. And for some, you'll even sacrifice your soul for that job. And even more, there's another building not that far from here where all the walls of mirrors and the priest and the priestesses, they dress in spandex. <laughs> and many people in there are driven to distraction to please the God worship there. And then there's also the mall or the stadium or the golf course or the casino where people find meaning and comfort purpose, and security. We all treasure something above anything else in our lives. We just do. We give our devotion to somebody. We offer our sacrifice to something. We look for the blessed life somewhere. Uh, John Calvin, the Reformed theologian, talked about the human heart is an idol factory. So, here's how it works. Listen to these insightful words by Timothy Keller, okay? We take good things, he writes, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and our hearts turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives. We see them as giving us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment, that's a powerful, I mean, just that first sentence, we take good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and our hearts turn them into ultimate things. The consumed, life-sucked-out-of-us feeling that so many of us have is not always due to the afflictions that we face or the pressures that we face or external things thrust upon us. It's more often caused by the idols that we bow down to and the false gods that entrap us and entangle our lives. We take a good thing and we turn it into a supreme thing. And in so doing, it consumes us. Like, how many women are consumed by always being on a diet? Now, some of you men should be consumed by that. <laughs> but always watching your weight. Always worried about how you look. Or always about being accepted by the in-laws are always being included by the other moms. How many men, how many men are consumed by being the man, being able to fix the problem, in control, got it together, being the strong one, always cool, calm, and collected? This, this is not a new problem. 
For centuries, humans have been living wrecked lives because they've bowed down to false idols. And most times, it comes out of pursuing something good, like a career or a family or security or happiness. Like in the 20th century, George Orwell, the great author, wrote that what will kill us is that we will get ourselves enslaved by something that we hate. Now, there's much truth in what George Orwell wrote there, but uh, at the same time, just a couple of years later, uh, Aldous Huxley uh, countered the comment of George Orwell, and he wrote these words, we will be enslaved by something we love, and that's what will kill us. Now, I'm Augustinian. All truth is God's truth. We will be enslaved by something we love, and that's what will kill us. I came across a helpful way to understand this. Here's how it works, okay? Uh, Define for you, just where you sit, in your head, define for you in your life what we could call a little hell. So just think for a few moments, okay? Engage your mind a little bit this morning. And just for a few moments, think, what would be like a little hell for you? For you, perhaps, a little hell is being poor and not having money to pay bills and keep yourself in a house. And when you think of that, you think, oh, I couldn't ever do it. Or maybe for you, hell is being ugly. Or for you, the definition of hell is being fat. Or maybe the definition is being unloved. For you, maybe the definition of hell is being unappreciated. So, so here's how idolatry works, okay? Fear of that little hell forces you to choose for yourself a false savior, a false god, to save you from that little hell. So, uh, for some of you who are single, maybe you're single through divorce or through never having been married or maybe through bereavement, but your little hell is the fear of being single the rest of your entire life. And so, for you, your Savior will be a spouse. And so, you keep looking for someone to give yourself to, someone who will save you from your little hell. Or maybe, maybe your little hell is failing, failure. So you give your entire life to make sure that you are successful. And everything that comes along that can help you with being successful, you jump at 200%. And it might be your job opportunity. It might be some money-making scheme. It might be the trimmings of success that you have to have, like the right car, the right house, the right number of kids. But now hear this, hear this. You know, Working hard at finding the right spouse and doing your job well and having ambition, owning a house, etc. None of these things are bad. But in our culture, this is how idolatry works. These little things are its feeding grounds. And we wake up one day and we discover that we have become enslaved to what was otherwise a good thing. And we wake up one day and we discover we're consumed by it. We're consumed by our job and being the best at it. We're proud to let people know we work harder than anybody else. 
We're consumed by debt because we had to have the right house and the right car in the right part of town with all the right furniture. We're consumed in trying to find Mr. or Mrs. Right and having the best sex. And that enslavement to something that we love will kill you, will suck the life out of you, and your soul will be shriveled up. So let's try and expose our idols this morning as we kind of get this preach going through, because I'm going to speak about five different idols over the next five weeks in that I'm here, and this is just an introduction to the series, okay? But let's, let's try and expose Let's try and finish by exposing our idols this morning because, you know, real personal, real honest, and because if you can expose them, then you're on your way to fixing them, okay? So, number one, uh, four helpful questions. Question number one, uh, what is it that you most fear? You fear being single, or you fear being left out, or you fear being alone, or you fear being disliked? Or you fear always being second? Or you're scared of being found out? <sighs> and if you can name this, you're doing well in knowing your idol. The things that you could become enslaved to, what are they? What is it that you most fear? Okay, question number two. What are you most passionate about? Think about what you most long for, or what motivates you, or what you're most ambitious about, uh, like a sports team, or your own attractiveness, or a relationship, or a hobby, or the next deal, or the next mission. Well, that can sometimes get me. Our Question number three, uh, what do you go to most for comfort? You know, you had a hard day, where do you run? Maybe you head to the fridge. Paul said it. Paul talked about it in Philippians. People's stomach is their God. I see it all over America. I have close friends, and that's how they do it. They comfort eat, they call it. Maybe you go out and shop. Or you head to the bar. You're a little home bar because you're hiding it from everybody else. Or you're under medication. Or you just head to despair. Question number four What makes you the happiest? What were your most happy moments? Like our, our, our culture revolves around the American dream. The pursuit of happiness and that loving family and that loving spouse and the nice things to share with each other and do with each other. Idols tend not to be bad things, but good things. Things that we gladly give ourselves to, but one day we wake up and our lives are consumed in serving that idol. Uh, I'm going to add in a fifth question, okay? Fifth question, what has caused you to be angry with God? What are you mad at God for? God, I was meant to have kids, and 
He didn't give me any. God, I was meant to be rich. God, I was meant to have a name for myself. God, God, you failed me, and in my quieter moments, the purest form of idolatry is the form where I put myself, my wants, my needs, my goals before God, and God exists for me. It's funny how God always agrees with all my causes <laughs> and my views and my opinions. Consumed. Life sucked out of you. Moses, Moses, Moses is up the mountain receiving what we call the Ten Commandments. And the very first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. First one, right out of the box. The human heart is an idol factory, and God says, be real careful. You say you worship me, you say I'm the God, but... So as we begin this series in five more weeks to unpack some of the idols that we bow down to, let's try to answer, before we finish, why idols wreck our lives. And this was cough medicine-inspired preach, so blame the cough mixture, okay? And the Mucinex DM, okay? Three insights. Number one, idolatry will cost you God's purpose for your life. Let me ask a question to anyone this morning who feels that life is sucked out of them. Do you feel as though you are living God's agenda for your life? Do you feel this is your destiny? You see, an idol has no agenda for your life. Just write that in your phone. An idol has no agenda for your life. In the Old Testament, the ancient world, people outside of Israel believed in gods that were like little local deities. And these little local deities ruled over the little local tribes. And if you moved to another location, you didn't take your god with you. You found a new god at that location. So it's like kind of like if you live in Chicago, you root for the bears. And if you live in Dallas, you root for the cowboys. And if you live in Oakland, you pray you live somewhere else. You know? But idols were used by the people to get what they wanted. So it was like a sad relationship between the local deities and the local people. You gave the idol what they wanted. You would take your sacrifice or your offering, and they in turn would give you what you wanted. So you gave them an offering of an animal. In some cases, you gave them an offering of a child. And in return, you got crops, or you got fertile land, or you got enough rainfall, or you had healthy children. That's how it worked. But then in this obscure corner of the world, uh, a little insignificant people called Israel, they worship one God, and He's not just local to one tribe, and that God gave them Ten Commandments. Like, well... Like other gods gave them rain or sunshine or fertility or victory in war, but their God gave them rules and laws. 
But this is the problem with idolatry. It does not have language or dealings with the bigger issues such as good and evil or right and wrong or justice and holiness or meaning and purpose. Idolatry is all about getting what you want, and it has no room for questions of fulfillment and destiny and love and goodness and purity and truth. Idolatry robs you, not just you. Idolatry robs God of depth of meaning and of existence. It robs you of God's greater purpose for your life. Idolatry just makes you a consumer. It doesn't make you a good or a greater person. Uh, Secondly, idolatry will exhaust you. I think the primary demand of most idols in our day is, thou shalt perform. I bet everybody in the room here feels the weight of that. This this is our culture, this is our world of gods, and we have to perform. At school, at work, at home, our kids feel this pressure day in, day out. And you've got to have a perfect home, and you've got to have perfect kids, and you've got to have a perfect career, and you've got to be perfect parents, and you've got to have a perfect school, and you've got to have a perfect church with a perfect pastor, and you've got to have a perfect appearance and perfect husband. Perfect! No idol ever said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like, like take a shot at who said that, and you're in church, so hazard a guess. Jesus. And the people Jesus said that to were bowing down to the idol of religious performance. No idol ever offered you grace and forgiveness. Last thing, idols do not have what you need the most. Misplaced devotion will make you do crazy things with your life. A misplaced devotion to success will turn you into a liar or a cheater or a quitter. Misplaced devotion to money and things will turn you into being greedy and selfish and bitter and cold-hearted. You'll become a taker and a user. Your idol doesn't care for you or love you. There have been idols with swords and with spears and with hammers and with helmets. There have been idols on pedestals and idols on mountains and idols on horseback, on clouds, on shrines. There have never been an idol on a cross. Only a Savior. Most people think idols have no power. But idols do have power. Idols have the power to make you throw your life away. Idols will wreck your life. Idols will suck the life out of you. So, over my next five preaches, let's learn together how not to be consumed in a world that is filled 
with things asking for you to worship them. Let's learn together how to live for a Savior and not for an idol. <laughs> Let's stand for closing prayer. And then I'm back in two weeks and we'll look at bowing down to the idol of busyness. Because <laughs> I'm busy next weekend, so I can't be here. <laughs> Let's pray. God, your holy scriptures tells us that we should flee from idols. Then we maybe have in our heads like the idols of the Old Testament, Asherah poles and strange monuments built, but the idols that we face, God, are so subtle and yet so powerful. They sneak up on us, things that we love, things that become ultimate in our lives. And they are good to begin with, but then, boy, God, they take control of our lives, and we become consumed by them. And slowly, gradually, we're trapped. And what could happen in this year if we could be free? free to become the men and the women that God you made us be and died for us to be and gave us a Savior to make us be. That's the journey, God. That's, that's the invitation we're making to, to spend a few weeks together being free of idols, disentangling ourselves to be able to live for you and the fullness of life that you say that you bring us. So come, inspire and teach us, but most of all, God, help us take the steps we need to take. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Have a great week, folks. See you in two weeks.